Have you ever read a part of Scripture and think as you read it, you know, this I'm sure is important, it's part of God's Word, but I don't really think that it applies very much to me. Anybody ever ever felt that way when you've read a part, a part of Scripture? Read anything and thought, well, sounds good, I'm sure it's good, but it's not really talking to me. Well, sure, I, I understand that. Uh, I think that's probably not uncommon at all. Well, this morning, I would uh, submit to you that we are basically going to uh, do that together. We're going to look at a passage of Scripture that you may have read at other times and thought, okay, that's nice, doesn't really say much to me, so let's just move on to the next thing. Uh, And, uh, of course, my challenge uh, as I present this text of Scripture to you and, and, uh, and explain it to you as it is to be understood, and, of course, then my challenge is to apply it. How does this apply to us? Uh, and I think that's important. So Titus chapter 1, uh, it's interesting because we're, we're looking this morning at verses 5 through 9 of Titus chapter 1. Uh, and I, I've entitled this message, The Church's Godly Leaders. Uh, Titus 1.5 is interesting because this verse, verse 5, really could be described as Paul's purpose statement the thesis statement of his letter. He's explaining to Timothy in this verse why he is receiving the letter. And if you look closely at this verse, you'll see that Paul is not telling Timothy anything he doesn't already know. Everything he's writing in this letter is simply a reminder to Titus of what Paul has already told him. Look with me there at verse 5. Paul says this, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. This is something Paul has already instructed Titus about. Remember that Titus is, Paul called him in verse 4, a true son in the common faith. This was a man that Paul viewed as a father views a son. He had a close relationship with him. This letter to Titus is important because it's Paul's communication to a young man who has been commissioned to do the work of the ministry. And Paul has sent Titus, or rather left him, according to verse 5, on the island of Crete. Now, When we read the New Testament and we look through all the books of the New Testament, first of all, of course, naturally, we would turn to the book of Acts to find out about Paul's life and ministry because the book of Acts is basically a history book that records what took place and how Paul ministered. And as we do that, you'll notice if you were to read the book of Acts this morning, you'd notice that the name Titus doesn't appear. That there's no record in the book of Acts of Paul ever being on the island of Crete. It's, of course, some people have, have used that, if you will, as ammunition to suggest that, well, Paul didn't really write this letter. 
This was someone else who claimed to be Paul and writing as Paul. Well, again, we have to remember a couple of things. We have to remember at the end of the book of Acts, in Acts 28, Paul is in Rome, and he is under house arrest, having been uh, placed into custody in Jerusalem, really to save his own skin, right, to rescue him, not because he had committed any crimes. Remember, the Jews accused him, but they but they failed to kind of follow the procedure of bringing evidence to court. You know, it's one of those things, it's a little detail, right? Someone makes an accusation of a crime, they really, they really need to follow up with some evidence, some proof that a crime has been committed. There was no proof because Paul never committed a crime. Right? And the Jews knew that, and they couldn't. They tried to plot against him and kill him, they couldn't do that. And he, of course, appealed to Caesar, and he ended up in Rome, but... He gets to Rome and he asks the Jewish leaders there, hey, what's the story on this whole prosecution business? And they say, hey, we haven't heard anything. They say, nobody from Jerusalem has contacted us. Obviously, the people in Jerusalem knew that this case wasn't going anywhere. So we have really strong reason to believe, and tradition tells us, even though the book of Acts ends there, tradition tells us that Paul is released from that imprisonment or that house arrest that he's under in Rome. And that he enjoys a period of freedom, again, that is not recorded in Scripture in, in any sort of historical way. Although I would submit to you that at least the books of, of Titus and 2 Timothy were written after that period and give us evidence that Paul was active and alive in ministry following that imprisonment. And that it was only later that he was arrested again when he was taken into custody in Rome and eventually executed uh, under the Caesar. So what does that mean about this? Well, it suggests to us that probably there was a, a, a missionary journey that Paul took that ended up somewhere on the island of Crete for some period of time, okay, following his release. Obviously, Titus was with him. For whatever reason, Paul was forced to leave the island of Crete without having finished the work that he started. And I think most of you probably understand how frustrating it can be to start a job and then not finish it. Anybody in here really hate to leave a job unfinished? It really irritates you? You just go, I, I, you know, I got to go back. I got to finish that. I just can't leave it undone. Well, Paul was unable to return to Crete for whatever reason. And we don't know the details historically. But we understand from what he says to Titus here that he, because he couldn't go to Crete, he left Titus there as his representative. I said this last week, that Titus really is not acting as a pastor here. I know sometimes we, we look at the books of Timothy and Titus and we refer to them collectively as the pastoral epistles. Um, but I don't think that Titus and Timothy are really serving as pastors. They're serving as representatives of Paul, the apostle. And so they have been commissioned to a unique ministry. And that's important for us to understand the background of all of this. Now, one other detail about Crete that's important. There is a place where Crete is mentioned in the book of Acts, and it's in Acts chapter 2 of the day of Pentecost. There were some people, Jews, from the island of Crete who were in Jerusalem for Pentecost who heard Peter's sermon and were saved. 
And so, from the earliest times of the church, it's possible that they went back to their hometowns on Crete and began to tell people about this message that they had heard in Jerusalem and lead other people to Christ. Again, we don't really have a lot of information about that. What we do know is this. Whether those churches were started at the beginning after Pentecost or whether these are just churches that Paul started or whether there's some combination of the two, in either case, Paul left Titus there on Crete and he left him there with this instruction that he was to look after the health of those churches. Titus's role here is concerned with the health of the churches, setting right the church in Crete, making sure that the job is finished, to set right what was left undone. I'm sure it bothered Paul that he had to leave without finishing. So he had to settle for Titus. He couldn't do it himself. He had to settle for Titus doing it in his place. And so he had told Titus what he was to do, but now he's left. And so what does he do? Well, he sends a letter to remind Titus of what he's supposed to do. A reminder's a good thing. That's why we have record of this. A couple of things that I want to point out to you here as we get into this, and, and uh, because I just think it's important for us not to get distracted with things. So just as you notice here, as we go through verses 5 through 9 this morning, I want to, to, to point out a couple of things. First of all is this. Paul uses a couple of terms here, and he uses them, and we need to understand these two terms. The terms he uses are elder and overseer. The New King James translates that bishop in verses 5, and then in verse 7, we have the word elder in verse 5, the word bishop in verse 7. These two terms, Paul uses these two terms to refer to the pastors of the churches. This is a consistent thing throughout the New Testament. These two terms, elder and bishop, are overseer. These two terms are used interchangeably in the sense that they're speaking of the same man or the same men, if you will. But they do have slightly different shades of meaning. Elder refers here to the maturity and the respect Obviously, we understand the word elder also is used in terms of an older person. And so it, it has the connotation here of the respect that is given to an aged man. And the New Testament submits to us that that same kind of respect is what is to be given to the, the pastor, the elder in the church. That's why he's called elder. Another reason... Another, the other term, overseer or bishop, is a different word. Overseer is a really good translation. It's the actual meaning of the word. It means one who watches over, an administrator. So it speaks there not so much of the, the maturity and the respect of the person, but it refers more to the, the role of administrator in the church, in the congregation. And so these two terms are, are used, but I want to explain them so we don't have any confusion here. I'm going to use these terms relatively interchangeably. 
And so I want, just don't want to be confused by that. Of course, we also use the word pastor. Right? Pastor is not found here in this text or in 1 Timothy. Uh, pastor actually comes from the instruction that's given to these men to shepherd. That's what pastor means. It means to shepherd. And so we oftentimes use these three terms interchangeably. In the New Testament, we primarily find the terms elder and overseer or bishop. So when you see the word bishop, think overseer, administrator, the person whose job it is to watch over the, the affairs of the congregation. Now, another point that's worth mentioning here as we get going is just this, that Paul doesn't tell Timothy to ordain elders. I think the old King James translation uses the word ordain here. That's a mistake. It's not, I, mean, not a, I don't hate that you use the word mistake. That's, a, I think, a poor choice of word because ordain has the idea of establishing the qualification theologically. We do that in the sense that we ordain someone. Uh, that's not what is said here. The word is a point. Paul doesn't tell him to ordain. He doesn't even tell the churches to choose the elders. He tells Timothy to appoint them. Now, why is that? Well, again, that, that, that's necessary for us to come back to think about what was Titus's position. Titus's role here is not the pastor over the island of Crete. It's not some sort of bishop role. We think of the word bishop today as like a, a pastor to pastor, somebody who's over the pastors. Okay, that's how it's commonly used in our world today. Okay, especially in denominations where there is more of a hierarchy of authority, right? You have the local church pastor, but then you have the bishop, and he kind of maybe has a whole region where he's over all those pastors. Well, you can maybe see right away that there's a misuse of that term bishop. That's not what that word means in the New Testament. It's not how it's used in the New Testament. Well, Titus was not the bishop of Crete. His role here is special. It's unique. Again, it seems to be dealing with, a, with, a, with an immature church rather than a more established one. We compare the, just, just for comparison's sake, think about the difference between what we read here in Titus and what we read in 1 Timothy 3. When Paul explains in 1 Timothy 3 the qualifications for a man who desires to be a bishop, he says, if a man desires the office or position of a bishop, and then explains what that man should be like. Here he tells Timothy, appoint elders. And he says it this way. He doesn't say if a man desires it. He says if a man is blameless, appoint him. Okay. In other words, 1 Timothy is dealing with a situation, I think, where you have an established church. You have an established church and there's a, a man in the church that, that desires, that, that finds himself wanting to serve as a pastor. And 1 Timothy 3 says, well, here's how you evaluate him. Here's the standards you should, you should follow. Here's what he should be pursuing in his own life if he desires this ministry. That, that's what 1 Timothy 3 is. So it's talking, I think, more in, in the lines of an established church. And someone is coming up in the church and just, see, you know, f just feels as though God is calling him in this way or just has this desire to serve in this way. And so he's supposed to look at that. In this, it's a different situation. Titus is supposed to look out among the congregations across the island and he is supposed to identify men who are qualified in this way. And then he is supposed to appoint them. There is a level of authority here that is different than what we find commonly in the church. And so I think it, 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 it deserves us kind of pointing that out, paying attention to that. 
so that we can recognize that what the, the specific instruction here to Titus is not normal for the church. It was a unique situation. Paul had gone to Crete, he'd preached, he'd planted churches. Those churches were immature and didn't have the proper uh, structure and organization, and Titus was to finish the job. It's kind of like a missionary on the mission field planting a church, you know? Well, what does he do? It takes some time before he can develop the leadership needed in the church. And so sometimes there's a transition period where we would say, hey, how come they're not doing things the way we do it? Well, because they're still transitioning to that point of being mature and structured and organized. And Titus is doing that here. So all of these things kind of contribute to our background understanding of what Titus or what Paul is telling Titus. I think it's important that we understand these details here. So I apologize, trying, I don't want to get too far afield with this, but I think it's important for us to understand those details. Now what I'd like to do then this morning is I'd like for us to consider the qualifications that the Lord requires for those men who are in spiritual leadership in the church. And then of course at the end I'd like for us to see how this applies to us today, all of us, not just to me. Because I could preach, you guys could all go home and I could just preach this message to myself, right? Right? This is only because it doesn't mean anything to you guys, right? Because you're not a pastor, so it's only me, right? Well, see, that's the danger we run into. You know, I think there is real application here for all of us, right? Uh, and so I want to want to see that. I want to just mention this too to the kids. You have your little your little uh, sheet there, your notes to fill out. Um, there's a lot for you to fill out, so try to follow along, okay? And try to, try to stick with me here, okay? It's really important for you to get these things, understand them. So let's read these verses together all the way to verse 9, and then we'll just have a quick word of prayer and we'll get into this. Uh, notice what he says there in verse 5. Again, this reason I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. If a man is blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of dissipation or insubordination, for a bishop must be blameless, as a steward of God, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but hospitable, a lover of what is good, sober-minded, just, holy, self-controlled, holding fast to the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict. Let me just pray and ask the Lord to help us this morning as we consider these truths to see how they minister to us. Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for your word. We ask, as we have this time in your word this morning, that it would be very clear to us to understand what you're saying. Help us to see what these expectations are for the leaders that you have called to be the the leaders of your church. And help us to see how these these verses and how these, these standards, how they speak to all of us how they challenge all of us. Lord, help us to see that these aren't just for pastors. This isn't just here for those those select few that are going to be leaders. This is for all believers to read and understand that you have something for us today. I pray that you'd help me as I speak to be very clear. And I pray, Lord, that you would guide us and direct us into truth as we understand your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, the qualifications of the pastor here could be placed under two headings. That's how I'm going to divide them up, two main headings. The first one is the elder's godly example. 
The second heading we'll come to in a little while is his gospel witness. But we're going to focus, first of all, on his godly example. Now, obviously, his example and his witness have to be congruent. If a man is going to preach the gospel, he's got to believe it himself. Or else his preaching will be ineffective and pointless. I've always wondered that. Why someone will be a, a Christian pastor and then, and then express disbelief in the, in the scriptures. I don't understand that. What's the point? Why are you bothering? Why even continue? If you don't believe that the Bible is true and you don't believe in the word of God, why? I mean, just go do something else, anything else. It doesn't matter. But there's no reason to get up in front of people and suggest that you're going to minister to them when you don't even believe the Bible. When you, don't, when you reject the, the, the fundamental truths of the gospel. So to me, this just makes sense. These two things certainly have to go together. If a man is going to proclaim that truth accords to godliness, we talked about that last week, he's got to demonstrate that godliness in his own life, right? Or else no one will believe what he's preaching. And so we've got, we're going to start here with the godly example, and then we're going to move on. To, to considering his gospel witness. The word blameless here in verse 6 is very important. In fact, it's really a key. It's a key to understanding all of verses 6 through 8 because Paul uses it twice, and it's really kind of an umbrella term. I think that the two that this gospel example can be subdivided really into two other categories under the heading of blameless. Okay, Because... If a man is going to be blameless, that means he is above reproach. It speaks about his public reputation. And if he's going to serve as an overseer in the church of God, he has to have a good name. This doesn't mean that he's perfect. If that were the standard, well, then there'd be no pastors at all. One of the authors I read this week, Ronald Ward, says, this and he says an elder is one who cannot be charged because he has given no grounds for accusation right. an elder is one who cannot be charged because he's given no grounds for accusation a man who gives grounds for accusation in these areas is not blameless and therefore he has he has reason someone can bring charge against him and is then disqualified from the position and so for a man to serve in this way, he must be blameless. Blameless, speaking of his character, his reputation, he must be known. He must be a man of integrity and public decency. So the idea of blamelessness here, and I said this is really kind of subdivides into two separate categories because there's two arenas in which Paul says he is to be blameless, right? The first one is this, an elder is to be blameless in his personal relationships. Blameless in his personal relationships. Notice what he says there in verse 6. If a man is blameless. And then he goes on in two phrases to explain what that means in the context here of this verse. In what way is the pastor, the elder, to be blameless? Well, he is to be the husband of one wife. In other words, he must be a man of one woman. That was my translation. The NIV translates it this way. He is to be faithful to his wife. I hope that comes up here. There we go. He's to be faithful to his wife. It doesn't mean, although 
in the history of the church, there's been a lot of confusion about this term, the meaning of this. It doesn't mean that he can't be a single man. It doesn't mean that he can't be a widower. There have been times when people have held that that's what this is saying. That's not what this is saying. It does mean this. In his marriage relationship, assuming that he's married, he must set an example of faithfulness to his one and only marriage partner. That is the standard that he has to meet if he is to be blameless. There's another, another, uh, another aspect here in which he has to be blameless. If he's going to be blameless, he also must have faithful children. This, this phrase is translated by some, uh, some of the, the versions, some of our modern versions, as having believing children. Because the word faithful there could, could refer to believing. Now, if that's true, does that, that may suggest that Paul is excluding any pastor whose children are not believers, who are not born again. Then we might ask, well, does that mean that Paul is excluding anyone whose children are not yet saved? What about a man with young children? We recognize, because we're Baptists, that we don't baptize a baby and turn him into a Christian. We recognize that a baby is a sinner, guilty, and as they grow, they must be taught the truth of the gospel and confronted, but the Spirit must draw them so that they can believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved, just like all of us. Does that mean that a man who's got young children who are not yet saved, should he not be, be qualified here? Well, again, this is a, a rabbit trail we could chase quite a while. There's a lot been written on this particular uh, verse and phrase and what it means, but I think we can sum it up in this way, and I think this is the best way to summarize this point. A man, if he is to be qualified to serve as an elder, must demonstrate his ability to lead spiritually at home first. That's what Paul is really saying here. When he says he has to have faithful children not accused of dissipation or insubordination, he's saying he has to be a spiritual leader at home, and if he's not going to do that, then he has no business taking a position of leadership in the church. Again, I think that's where the explanation here, he says that, because that he, go, he goes on, not just saying having faithful children, but he says they must not be accused of dissipation. That word dissipation means living a wild and uh, disordered life. It's the same word that Jesus uses to describe the prodigal son. Remember the prodigal son in Luke 15, who took his inheritance and he ran off to a far country to live a riotous life. A disordered life. He lived in dissipation. The word literally means unable to save. It's somebody who can't hold on to money because they just waste it on everything. Just completely out of control with no discretion at all. That's the idea here. The other word here that he uses is insubordinate. Insubordination. Of course, that speaks of being lawless or unruly. 
Now, I think there's a pretty good example, if you want to get an idea of what Paul is warning about here, in the scriptures. Consider the sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas. 1 Samuel chapter 2 tells us about these men. And it says, the sons of Eli were corrupt. They did not know Yahweh. Eli, remember, was the high priest. The top spiritual leader in the entire nation of Israel. And his own two sons did not know the Lord. They were corrupt. That chapter goes on to describe their sin. They polluted the people's sacrifices. And when, people, when, when some people tried to resist their sin, they threatened violence and used violence to get their way. These were men who were corrupt and wicked and ungodly. Now you remember that night, I'm sure most of you remember the story when Samuel, as a young boy, was laying in bed and he heard the voice, Samuel, and he thought it was Eli, you know, you remember the story, and it wasn't Eli, it was actually God. God spoke to Samuel that night, and he gave him a message for Eli. God said this to Samuel to pass on to Eli, this message. He said, I have told him, speaking of Eli here, that I will judge his house forever. Now listen, why is Eli's house going to be judged? Because of the iniquity which he knows. Because his sons made themselves vile and he did not restrain them. Eli's sons both died the same day. They paid for their sin with their own lives. But their father, he was also held accountable. By the way, he died that day too. Separate incident, you can read about it in 1 Samuel. But he was also held accountable. Why? Because he failed to lead them spiritually. He failed to deal with their corruption, their wickedness. This is, I think, the idea behind the warning here. That if you have a man who refuses to deal with his own children at home, who refuses to lead them and to, 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 to teach them spiritually, he has no business being a leader in the church. Because he's proven that he can't do it. He can't do it at home. Why do we think he can do it in the church? See, That is what this qualification is about. So he's talking here about the, the elder, the, the overseer being blameless, being above reproach. When it comes to his personal relationships, especially Paul is focusing on the home. What is this man like at home? How does that reflect? That's important. There's another area of blamelessness, and that is his personal conduct. Verses 7 and 8 speak about this. He says, again, for a bishop must be blameless, using the same word again. And now he's going to offer a whole list of other qualifications that also must be met if a man is to be blameless. But in this area, it's not so much his relationships, it's his personal conduct. It's how does he himself behave. And he goes down through and he offers a whole list of, of, of expectations. What does it mean to be blameless in personal conduct? Well, first of all, he says he must be not self-willed or the, the, the word here is the idea of being arrogant. Not arrogant. Self-pleasing. Overbearing. 
The primary idea here is he cannot be interested only in himself. He must be committed to serving and caring for the needs of others. Notice the next thing, not quick-tempered, he says. That means to be prone to anger. Prone to anger. Hot-tempered, irritable. Think about it. Proverbs 25, 28 says this, Whoever has no rule over his own spirit is like a city broken down without walls. Think about it. A city that's walls are broken down is vulnerable. This is one of those things that doesn't translate easily into our society because we don't have walls around our city. We live in, in relative peace and security compared to much of the ancient world and many other places in the world today. We don't need a wall around our city to keep us safe, but in ancient, in ancient Israel they did. And so the, the city that's walls are broken down is defenseless, completely vulnerable. A man who cannot control his own spirit, a man who is, who is prone to anger, is defenseless. He's vulnerable. I mean, think about it. How can that man, how can he patiently and lovingly and gently minister to the flock? How can he do that if he's prone to anger? If he's always irritable? If he cannot control his own spirit? How's he going to deal with that sheep that just keeps wandering off and won't stay with the flock? If he's always irritable and angry. See, it doesn't fit, it doesn't work. How can he deal with the hostility of unbelievers? Because right? this world has no love for the truth. This world has no love for the people who are committed to the truth. And if a pastor or man is going to lead in the church, he's going to have to handle that hostility. And so he must be able to rule his own spirit. He must be a man who is not prone to anger. There's another standard here, not given to wine. This means not a drunkard. Someone who is enslaved to alcohol or, or, I mean, we could just say any other substance that would exercise control over his mind and his body. Pretty clear. We talked, was it last summer? I think we did a study on Wednesday nights on Christians and alcohol. We talked about what the Bible actually says about that. And when we said that the, the scripture doesn't offer any blanket prohibition that says no drinking alcohol is wrong, the scripture offers a great deal of warnings that cause us to be very cautious when dealing with substances that can take control of our minds and our bodies and our lives. And if a man is going to lead the church, then he must lead in that way as well. And be very cautious with those things. There's more. He's not to be violent. What does that mean? It means he can't be quick to strike a blow. Quick to start a fight. Again, the book of Proverbs speaks appropriately here. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. 
Maybe you know someone who is very quick to respond with a harsh word. And Paul would say that man ought not be in the position of an elder. A man who is quick to get into a fight and come to blows has no business serving as an elder. He's not to be a violent man. He's also not to be greedy. Not seeking dishonorable gain. It's important to understand here when Paul says not greedy for money, he's not saying that pastors shouldn't get paid. He makes it very clear in 1 Timothy chapter 5 that the laborer is worthy of his reward and that an elder who labors to teach God's word should be well supported by the church. But the pastor's attitude toward money is what he's talking about here. He's not to be greedy. He's not to be desiring uh, to use his position in order to get wealth, in order to become wealthy. There are a lot of men who, by this standard alone, are clearly disqualified from being elders and pastors and churches. And you can turn your TV on and you can see them on TV just about every day of the week, if you want. An elder is going to be blameless. He has to avoid these negative behaviors. These things that Paul has warned about demonstrate that that man is still under the controlling power of sin in his mind, in his body, in his mouth, in his heart. These things must not be true of a man who is to be an elder in the church of God. But then in verse 8, he kind of transitions to speaking of the positive characteristics. It's not just negative things he should avoid. It's also positive characteristics. If a man is going to be blameless, he must be hospitable. Literally, that means to be kind to strangers. Now, that doesn't mean that an elder doesn't have to be kind to his friends. Okay. Although I, I have to say that I have heard a, I've heard a pastor kind of preach it that way, that this is really talking about only strangers. It has nothing to do with hospitality toward, toward people in the church. Well, I disagree with that. We have to understand the historical context here. We're not living in an era where there was a Holiday Inn and a Best Western, uh, you know, that they could go stay in. When people traveled, they often stayed with family or friends, and if they didn't have any of those, they were really stuck. Well, as Christians, traveling from place to place, the pastor, the, the elder, was supposed to demonstrate his hospitality toward those who were traveling. They may be strangers. Fine. Be kind to them. Show them hospitality. I think what it's saying here is this, that you are, that the pastor is to be showing hospitality to those who are not in a position to return the favor or to pay him back. You know, somebody's traveling through and they're coming from some other place and they need a place to stay, we give them a place to stay. I may never see them again. We may never connect with them again. It's irrelevant. It's not about getting paid back. It's not about getting returned the favor. It's just doing it to serve someone who can't do anything to return it. That's the attitude he's supposed to have. So how he talks about hospitality, that's what he's talking about here. Serving those especially who are in need who cannot pay back. He also says 
a lover of what is good or a lover of goodness. This means that he's to be especially interested in things that are of real value and benefit to himself and to others. There's a good description of this in the book of Philippians, chapter 4 and verse 8. Paul says, whatever things are true, noble, just, pure, lovely, of good report, virtuous, praiseworthy. These are the kind of things that ought to occupy the, 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 the heart and the life and the time of a man who is an elder in the church, a lover of good things. He must be discreet. That's what sober-minded means there. This word is translated in many different ways. Sensible, sober-minded, self-controlled, prudent. That's the idea here of controlling his thoughts and his words, living in moderation. Someone who is not out for attention and living a flashy life. No, it's someone who lives in moderation, living with restraint, able to control himself. It also must be upright. That's pretty clear. He must be he must be living and doing right. He can't be a lawbreaker. Can't be somebody who's always shading the truth or cutting corners. No, he needs to be somebody whose life is characterized by doing what is right. He must be devout or holy what he says here holy again the standard is not sinless perfection if that were the case jesus christ is the only one who could serve but a pastor must be pious devoted to god and in pursuit of holiness in his own life the last qualification here in this list is that he must be self-controlled the niv translates this disciplined Ronald Ward, again, mentioned him earlier, says that this word means the mastery of the self by the self, and specifically the new self. What it's talking about here is the power of the new nature of a man who is born again to rule over his old sinful nature by the power of the Holy Spirit. This word is also used, found in Galatians 5 in the list of the fruits of the Spirit. This is something that the Holy Spirit does in the life of a person. He gives them self-control. That the, the new self, the new man is able to live in control and rule over the old man. So that's what it means for an elder or an overseer to be blameless. But there's still another qualification Aside from blamelessness, the other qualification has to do with his gospel witness. The elder's gospel witness, look at verse 9. Holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict. Well, very very clearly here, he must be committed to the truth. Committed to the true teachings of God's word. Too often we see pastors who abandon God's word. They leave behind the things they've taught. They go into error. We see them questioning fundamental uh, truths of the scriptures, like you know whether God actually created the universe in six days and rested on the seventh. 
whether the scriptures are really accurate and truthful in all their teachings, whether God's word is enough to equip us to live godly. They began to look and search for something more, a second blessing or a personal word from the Holy Spirit. Listen, there's a thousand and one ways in which a pastor can, can stray from the truth. Paul warns a pastor must not be a man with a loose grip on the Bible. And why is that? Well, again, it goes all the way back to the first verse and what Paul described here in his own ministry. It's the acknowledgement of the truth which accords with godliness. It's the truth of God's word when it is faithfully taught and when it is believed that produces godliness in the life. And so if a pastor doesn't cling to the word of God, there's no way for him to develop godliness in his life. And there's certainly no way that he can minister that godliness to anyone else. The standard of blamelessness which he has just finished describing in verses 6 through 8, is directly related to. In fact, it's the natural outworking of a commitment to the Word of God. And that's why we find that when a man begins to question and begins to set aside portions of the word of God. It begins to stray in doctrinally in areas of the word of God. It isn't very long, usually, not in every case, I'll admit, but usually before we start to see failures in his life. And he no longer is blameless. There's two reasons in this verse for an elder to be holding firmly to the truth. And in both cases, it's because he's got to do something with it. Why does a pastor need to know and commit himself to the word of God? Because that's where he, that's where his work is. That's what he's got to do. Notice what it is. First of all, he has to encourage by sound doctrine. Exhort is the word here. Encourage. It means to comfort or encourage or build up or strengthen. When a pastor preaches and when he teaches the faithful word as he has been taught himself, he will comfort, he will strengthen, and he will encourage the ones who believe. That is his calling, that is his job. But there's another aspect of this. He also must reprove. And the interesting thing is he reproves by sound doctrine as well. The word reprove here means to confront and expose those who speak against the truth of the Bible. How do we confront error? How do we expose false teaching and false beliefs? By proclaiming the truth. That's why a man has got to be committed to the word of God. Because if he's not committed to the word of God, there's no way for him to encourage believers with sound doctrine. And there's no way for him to reprove and reject false teaching. He's got to be committed to the truth of the Word of God. Paul is telling Titus that his job, his mission, is to choose men to be elders, overseers, pastors in the church in Crete who have heard and believed the faithful teachings of Scripture not just in an academic way, not with their heads. Oh, yeah, 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 I've read the Bible. I affirm it's true. Okay, but these are, have to be men who have drunk so deeply from the fountain of God's truth 
that it is in their very heart and their very soul, that to deny it would be to tear apart the very fiber of their being. This is the level of commitment to God's word that is required of an elder in the church of Jesus Christ. Nothing else will do the work of, com of comfort and encouraging the believer. Nothing else will do the work of correcting and reproving the skeptic. But why does it matter today to you? Everything I've said so far means a lot to me. Why does it matter to you? Well, there's probably a lot of applications. Let me just suggest three of them. First is this. There is an objective standard by which a pastor is to be judged. There is an objective standard by which a pastor is to be judged. We don't need to take a survey of American Christians to find out what a pastor is supposed to do. We don't have the liberty to decide that any man that can fill an auditorium, offer an uplifting speech, flash a pearly smile, or write a best-selling book can be an overseer in the house of God. There's one standard, and it's God's standard. An elder must be blameless at home and blameless in the community. He must hold firmly to the truth of God's word. These are not options. They're not suggestions. It is a divine standard by which he is to be judged. By the way, this also means that we don't get to evaluate a pastor based on our own personal preferences or based on our opinions about how he should act or what he should do. He doesn't have to conform to the American ideal or to our own expectations because we have no right to judge him based on any other criteria than those listed here in Scripture. His duty is to encourage believers and to reprove scoffers by faithfully teaching sound doctrine. These are the activities for which he can and ought to be held accountable. The church, which is, of course, the congregation, not the building, right? The church ought to consider this when seeking a pastor. The church ought to consider this when evaluating the ministry of their own pastor. And pastors need to keep this in mind when we evaluate ourselves. And I consider my own ministry and my own priorities. God has given a standard. None of us have a right to set that aside, change it adapt it, or make our own. The standard is God's standard. There's a second possible application here, and it's related to the first one. See, if, if God has given a standard by which you as a congregation, in which I, as a pastor, ought to judge my life and ministry, then that also means you, got, you and I both have a list of character traits and responsibilities for which you can pray. If you ever wondered how you should pray for me as a pastor, well, you could start by praying for my marriage and my family. Pray that I would be faithful to love my wife and train my children as I ought to. You can pray for my example of godliness in the categories that Paul lists. Not arrogant, prone to anger, a drunkard, violent, or greedy, but instead hospitable, a lover of goodness, discreet, upright, devout, and self-controlled. And you can pray that I will stand firmly rooted in the word of God without compromise and without wandering into error. Pray for me. There's a third application here. 
I would just say it this way. To whatever extent my life demonstrates the blamelessness that God demands, it is an example to show you that godliness is possible in this world. If the word of God has taken root in my heart, if the word of God has transformed me from a child of wrath into a child of God, is that because I'm such a good person? Please, all answer with me, no. That didn't happen because I'm such a great guy. Is it because I'm somehow more deserving of God's grace than you are? No. It's simply this. My life is a testimony to the power of God's grace. If there is any virtue in my life, if there's any character that's worth copying, if there are any sins that have been put to death, if there's any freedom from the bondage of sin in any way, it's only by the power of the gospel which I have believed and which has produced that godliness in me. And I would say this. If I can do it, it's proof that there's hope for you. If I can do it, that's, that's part of the reason that I'm supposed to be standing here listing these qualifications. You say, well, I just, you know, I just have this, this thing that just keeps, I, I can't get victory in this area of my life. It just keeps knocking me down. It's this, this sin I can't get a hold of. Okay? Well, If nothing else, you can see in me that it's possible to live for the Lord. It's possible to turn away from sin. It's possible to put to death your selfish, sinful flesh. That's why a pastor's life is supposed to be an example. To show you that, yes, you can put to death sin in your flesh you can walk in newness of life. This is the power of the gospel that's demonstrated in the godly example and the gospel witness of a qualified pastor. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your word is true, we know that. Your word is profitable to us. Even those passages that may only seem to refer to a small group of people within the congregation small group of people within the Christian church at large, and yet we realize that there is truth here for all of us. Help us, Lord. Help us to love you as we ought to. Help us to pursue blamelessness in our own lives and a commitment to the truth, just like the calling of a pastor. Help us to see that there is hope to live in a way that is pleasing to you. Help me to be what I ought to be as a pastor, as an elder in the congregation, that I would set an example that others might strive to follow as I follow Christ. 
pray all of these things in Jesus' name.